0: You're listening to audio from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. If you'd like to check out more resources or learn about our ministry, please visit holycrosstucson.com. So you're going to be in the book of Deuteronomy today, Deuteronomy 8. We're not going to read the passage right away, uh, but we will get to it. Um, But before we move into the sermon itself, join me as we pray together. Father, thank you for uh, the promise of Scripture that The Word of God is not just words on a page, but it comes to life by your Spirit. And and as you have gathered us as your people, uh, we expect and anticipate you to speak to our lives very personally, very directly from Scripture. So we pray for that. We open our hearts uh, to respond to the Spirit of God, to the Word of God. We, we We ask you to give us ears to hear and hands to apply what you bring to us today. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So I had a friend in the years I was in California who taught me uh, that there's a great question to ask when you come into any difficult circumstance in life. And he taught me that because he always did. Um, I remember uh, our church that I served as pastor in over in San Diego had a lawsuit with the city that went on for four years. wasn't on my bucket list of things to do. Uh, but when that lawsuit began, I remember sitting with this man, and he looked at me and he looked at me, and he said, "I wonder what the Lord is up to." Well, that, I, that's not what I was thinking about at the time. I was, I was more in a panic mode. What are we going to do with the lawsuit? His question was, was about expectation. I wonder what God is up to. And that was not an unusual question for him to ask when he counseled people, when we would meet together as elders, I wonder what God is up to. And asking that question, he was addressing our expectations, wasn't he? What what do you think God's doing? And he was assuming God was up to something good. And he knew expectations of faith were very important. So I I think that's true not just in leading a church, but in every aspect of the Christian life. Our our expectations really set things up a certain way. Um, Paul Tripp, I believe it is, wrote a book on marriage called What Did You Expect? Because if you help people in the midst of marital difficulties, you realize that expectations make a huge difference in how they perceive their difficulties. So we are uh, six months into a global pandemic, lockdowns, all kinds of things going on. You remember, it seems like 10 years ago, but it was just about five months ago, 21 days to flatten the curve. And when you heard that, what did you expect? You probably didn't expect to be sitting here on September 6th wearing masks, still waiting for things to get back to normal. Expectations are very important. So, this morning I want to address the question with my life verse. One of the, they're one of the passages I go to, I've gone to again and again for over 40 years in marriage and in ministry. Uh, I want to address the question what can we expect in the Christian life? Uh, What should our Christian life look like? So I'm going to give a longer answer, and then I'm going to give a very short answer, and then we're going to look at this passage. So after I have been fully accepted in God through Jesus Christ, what I can expect from God is that my God and Father will now take me into a lifetime of training. That's what I can expect. Or to put it a little differently, God accepts me as I am, but in his Holy goodness, he has no intention to leave me as I am. And he uses his word, the ministry of preaching, the church, its elders, prayer, and circumstances to reshape my life so he doesn't leave me as I am. Or, to put in a simple sentence, I can expect the Christian life to be one in which God leads me leads you, leads us, on a path that trains us to walk by faith. Let me, let me break it down a little and then we'll look at the passage. God, God is intentional in leading us every step of the way. He, he leads us to, to train us, to exercise us, to shape us, and he has a goal that we learn to walk by faith. That's a hard goal, because walking by faith is not something we do intuitively. I, I like to see what's going on in my life, I like to live on my circumstances, I like to live on how I'm feeling, I like to live on my regular paycheck, I like to ground my faith in what's visible, measurable, tangible, and real. I don't like to walk by faith, which means I ground my life on what's invisible. I ground my faith on God and His promises, not how things are going. So God wants to teach me to walk by faith, to depend on Him. And God guides us into the experiences for that to happen. Now where do I get that principle? I get it in Deuteronomy 8. And we're going to read the first five verses in a second, so context. Deuteronomy 8, the second generation is on the edge of the land, on the plains of Moab, modern-day Jordan, looking across the Jordan River at the hill country of eastern Judea. And Moses is preparing them to go into the land. And as he does that, he reminds them of the ways of God that they experience for their 40 years in the wilderness. So follow me. Deuteronomy 8 verse 1. The whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do that you may live and multiply, and go in, and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you, to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you, and lets you, hunger and fed you with manna which you did not know nor did your fathers know that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothing did not wear out on you and your foot did not swell these 40 years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son the Lord your God disciplines you. So let's break this down and let's talk about how this passage speaks to what we may expect as the normal experience of the Christian life. So let's break it down. First of all, God leads us. God leads us in a path to train us to walk by faith. God leads us. That's what he says in verse 2. You shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years. There was a purpose in God's leading He says in verse 5 that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God is disciplining you. It's to train you. God led you. So what this means is every circumstance the Israelites faced in the wilderness was designed by God for them. Every circumstance. Now, their leading was kind of obvious. There was a pillar of cloud in the day and there was a pillar of fire by night. For 40 years, wherever that pillar went, they followed. The pillar was there overnight and moved. They got up and moved with it. If it was there three weeks, they got up and moved with it. If it stayed for six months, they stayed there. The pillar of cloud, pillar of fire led them. God was leading them every step of the way. And it was a wilderness. So what do I mean by wilderness? Most Americans don't get it. People who live in Arizona might get wilderness. So, the Sinai Peninsula, on its best day, could be likened to the area between Gila Bend and Yuma. (laughs) And that's after rainy season. So, take the area between Gila Bend and Yuma and multiply it in size by four, and that's the Sinai Peninsula. Forty years, pillar of cloud, pillar of fire, God moved his people through an area that looked like that, very intentionally. God designed every stop, every place they went. And God leads us in every stop and every place we go, although there's no pillar of cloud and fire. It's just providence. So here's what I want you to hear in this first point. Your circumstances individually, in marriage, with kids, in your work, as a church, in our society, in your neighborhood, with your health, whatever they may be, are custom designed by God for you. God is leading you on a certain path. Now, that's 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 a hard thing for us to accept. Um, one of the hats I wear is I'm a certified Christian conciliator. Do professional mediation. Work with churches. Work with couples in conflict. I just. Some of the highlights of years of ministry is watching God bring reconciliation between people. But before I get into the process of reconciliation with Christians, I always say we have to begin here. Do you believe in the sovereignty of God? Oh yes, yes, God is sovereign. Everybody knows God is sovereign. So do you believe God in his sovereignty has brought you into this circumstance? And it's always like, well, I'm not sure if I apply it there. I mean, I like it that God is sovereign when somebody else is in sorrow or in suffering, but I'm not sure I like it when it's me. And what I try to move them to using scripture is to believe that your circumstance, this conflict, is given by God, custom designed, because God has something he wants to do in your life through it. There's a beautiful thing on the other side as you respond to God, but you must Believe and trust that God has designed this for you. Now, that would apply not just to conflict, but to all circumstances. God has brought me into it. So in the details of my life, the pressure points, whatever they may be, the stresses, my own sin and failure, the way others have disappointed me, sickness, disability, distance learning with kids, whatever it may be, God has led me into this situation in its details for my good. It's custom designed for me. So that's, that's, where, that's where Moses begins with Israel. The Lord led you. But to what end? Well, verse 2 and 3, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart. And he humbled you and let you be hungry. So there are three words here. Humble, test, and know. God leads us to see our emptiness. God leads us to see our emptiness. He does that by humbling us, testing us, so that we may know. What do I mean by humble? An interesting word here, ani. uh, It refers to severe affliction, poverty, emptiness. God leads us to the place of Poverty. It says he humbled you and lets you be hungry. That doesn't mean he lets you miss a meal. It means more than you missed your afternoon latte. It means you were hungry. You probably hadn't had food for a day or two, probably hadn't water for a day or two. You were hungry, you were empty. God leads you by humbling you to place you in a place of desperate need. Why? Why does God use affliction to humble us? Because, simple reason, when we're doing well, we are usually deluded about ourselves. We're we're very self-deceived. When things are going well, we want to sing with Michael Buble, I've got the world on a string. right? And if things are going really well and it goes on a while, we want to write a book about how you can do what I've done and you can have a good life too. Because we really think we figured it out. Affliction, humbling, trial, testing, cuts through that lie. Because it's not true. Severe trials bring us to see that I don't have the world on a string. I'm not in control. I haven't figured it out. Well, how does it do that? Well, verse verse 2, again, he humbles you to test you. What do you you mean by test? Well, a test reveals what's true, right? Uh, I I remember many times heading off to school. Mom would say, where are you going? Seventh, eighth grade. Uh, I said, well, I got a test in math today. You think you're going to do well? Mom, I got it. I got it, right? Don't worry, Mom. Come home. How'd you do in the test? I don't want to talk about it. That, that's, that's our native condition. Tests reveal what's true, not what we think is true. Because I can be self-deceived. So I need to be humbled to be tested because testing reveals what's true. And God tests us to reveal what's really there. He tested Abraham when he said, Take now your son, your only son Isaac, and go to the mountain. I'll show you and sacrifice him there. It says God tested Abraham. Abraham. Abraham, do you really trust me? Oh yeah, I trust you. Okay, here's what here's going to find out if you do. It says, it says Yahweh, the Lord, took Israel into the desert to test them. To find out what was there. James says God brings us into circumstances to test our faith. To determine how real it is. So God humbles us to test us to show us what's really there. So that we will know ourselves. It says that you may know what was in your heart. Now, the language may be a little vague, so that he might know what was in your heart. Sounds like sounds like God needs to know. No, God already knows what's in our heart. We don't. God humbles us and tests us, so we'll learn about ourselves, what's really true. And we have a hard time accepting what's really true. I always say everybody, everybody I know, including myself, has an image of ourselves in our heads, right? That image is four parts truth, three parts wishful thinking, and two parts lies. Right? I've never met anybody that heard their voice on a recording and said, that's exactly what I sound like. How did they do that? And I've never seen anybody that saw a picture of themselves and said, that's me. That's exactly right. We always look at it and say, oh, they didn't catch my good side. And the people around us are like, no, actually they did. (laughs) Um, We need to know who we really are. There was a survey done, I think it was 1999, 65% of the people in the United States believe they have above average intelligence. That's, That's our condition. And the only way God can cut through that is not by giving us the Enneagram or Myers-Briggs, but by humbling us to test us. Because in the humbling and the testing, we find out what we're really about. Um, when when we first got married, my, my wife and I had a bumpy early stage of marriage, but then we entered into a just this wonderful time of being best friends, didn't have any conflicts, and... After a couple years, I thought, I am such a good husband. I, I am so patient and kind to my wife, and we have such unity, and it's because I'm such a great leader of the family. And that went really well until we tried to wallpaper a room together. And within an hour, she stormed out of the room and said, you do it. Well, I thought it was her fault. You know, if you would just be more responsive to my leadership. Well, actually, I was bossy, controlling, know-it-all. I didn't come out looking so good. I didn't want to see that about myself. But in the pressure of wallpapering, not not major affliction, pretty minor, I found out what I really was. And then we had children. Now, if you'd asked us a week before our oldest, Rachel, was born, she'll be 39 this year, are you all flexible? We would have said, we are some of the most flexible people in the human race. Are you all, are you all tough? Can you endure adversity? We have got it. We have faced unbelievable trial. Well, three weeks into a colicky baby that slept very little, ate and cried screaming the rest of the time, we are ready to check out of life. We were exhausted. We hadn't slept. We couldn't get anything done. We were were fighting with each other, angry all the time. So much for being flexible. So God uses affliction to test us so that we will know ourselves. Remember Israel left Egypt, Exodus 15, sang the praises of God. You have brought us out of Egypt. You have thrown the horse and the rider into the sea and we're going to trust you forever. And a week later they're out of food and they're saying, you brought us out here to kill us. See, that's what we really are. What you are in affliction, what I am in affliction is what I really am. And God designs humbling and testing so that we will know ourselves. Well, that brings up a tough question. Does, does God get some, some kind of perverse pleasure in making us feel badly? No, no, not at all. He's a faithful physician who used tests to help us see the disease so that we'll find the cure in Christ. He's using the test to reveal the disease so that we will seek the cure. And it takes the testing and the humbling and the knowing of ourselves before we begin to be willing to do that. Because most of our lives are I can fix it with a little help from God, not I am bankrupt and God must rescue me. So God is using, leading me into the exact circumstances I'm in so that he might Humble me in affliction, test me to see what, what I'm really about, show me who I really am, so that the end of that, number three, he will reveal his sufficiency. The way he puts it here is, so that you might learn man does not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. I fed you with manna. So, so imagine for a minute you're in that wilderness between Hilo Bend and Yuma. Um where everybody drives 90 just to get through it. And you're out there camping, and uh, your cell phone doesn't work because Verizon doesn't have coverage out there despite the little guy in the commercial. Um, there's, There's no delivery service, and you're out of food, and it's been three days, and there's no water, and you haven't had water in two days. And you have no visible means of support. That's where Israel lived in the wilderness, day after day. And God says, Here's what I'm going to do. Every morning you're going to get up, and you're going to find what you need for that day on the floor of the desert. It's Sort of like saltine crackers. Whole floor of the desert covered with it. They didn't know what it was, so they named it. What is it? That's what manna means. What is it? They've never seen it before. You're going to get up every morning. You're going to get enough for the day. At the end of the day, your cupboards are going to be bare. You're going to get up the next morning, I'll fill your cupboards enough for the day, you'll go to the end of the day and your cupboard's going to be bare. Don't save it because whatever you store overnight is going to rot. And the only exception is going to be on the Sabbath where you get up on the sixth day and I'll give you enough for two days and you'll be able to save that, stick it in the cupboard and you'll wake up on the Sabbath and you'll have enough for the day. Talk about visible demonstration of God's activity for 40 years. Now imagine that. Imagine that. I I think, okay, no no 401k. No checking account. No savings account. No refrigerators. No Yeti storage units. (laughs) In fact, God says, I'm going to provide for you in such a way that your clothes aren't going to wear out. So he traipse around the desert for a couple months, look down at your sandals and go, they look brand new. Look at your, your legs, your pants, and you'd say, there's no wear and tear, no threadbare portions. You'd look at your body and it wouldn't be responding to the heat and the exertion. No swelling. And what God was teaching Israel is he is all sufficient. He doesn't need grocery stores. He doesn't need Amazon. He doesn't need the internet. He doesn't need your retirement account. He doesn't need my savings account. He doesn't need anything except his word of command. And by his word of command, he can feed you every day, the rest of your life, a day at a time. He's all-sufficient. From God's perspective, it is no more difficult to supply for a nation in the wilderness than it is to supply for people who live in the city. No more difficult. And they were not any more secure in his provision once they got into the land than they were when they lived in the wilderness a day at a time on the manna. So God God emptied their hands of all visible means of support so that he might show them his infinite sufficiency. He's leading them to walk by faith, not by sight. Because he's the God who gives life to the dead and calls the things that are not as though they are. He empties our hands of all that we treasure and depend on so that he might fill them with his provision, with himself. Because as C.S. Lewis said, if I have God alone, I have no less than he who has God in all things. Because I have everything in him. And that's how God works with his people all through history. He brings them to an end of themselves so they might learn to walk by faith. One one example, Abraham and Sarah. (laughs) Abraham and Sarah, you're going to have a son. Cool, great. Let's go for it in 25 years. Abraham, Sarah, you've never had a child. You're barren. Abraham, you're old. Maybe you could conceive a child at age 75. We're going to wait 25 years until that's impossible too. And I'm going to give you a son. Because I don't need healthy young bodies to bring about a conception of a child. I can bring that by a word of command. That's where God wants to take us. So we don't live by bread alone, but we live depending on God to speak and supply our needs. Now, you might say, can I just read a book on this? I mean, wouldn't that be great? Here's a book, read this book, you got it. I I wish I learned that fast. I don't. I I can go from severe affliction, desperate for God's work, to things being better and arrogant and not depending on God anymore. I need God to lead me in a path that humbles me, tests me, shows me what's in my heart so that I will run to him in his all-sufficiency and live by faith. Uh, a couple of years ago, I, I said to a friend, I was talking about, oh, I, I just want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. And I still remember he looked at me and said, so when do people need resurrection, Mark? So when they're dead. He said, are you dead? No. He said, well, then why would God show you the power of his resurrection? Oh, so i got to be dead first. Well, that's what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 1. He said, we came into circumstances so difficult that life was over, Second Corinthians 1, 8 and 9, so that we despaired of life, and God did this so that we would not trust in ourselves but in God who raises the dead, who did raise us from the dead. Uh, Rhonda and I were out walking a couple months ago, and she was saying, what are you thinking about? Every morning we take a walk, talk about what we're reading and praying about, and uh, she said, What are you thinking about? I said, I'm just, things are so difficult. I just want to get to the point in my life where I don't have to trust God all the time. And then there was this long pause like, did I just say that? I did. I did. I, I don't want to be humbled and tested to know it's in my heart so that I live in the all-sufficiency of God. I want to have the all-sufficiency of God as a backup behind my retirement savings. But that's not dependence. That's not faith. God wants me to say, he alone is my security whether or not I have retirement or not. And in in this, God wants me, designs the circumstances of my life, and opens himself to me and says, I'm designing everything so that you might see more and more all that I am for you. Um, Didn't say this in the first service, but a couple years ago at the royal wedding, uh, I remember when the prince turned to the bride. I don't remember which prince it was. I just remember what he said. A man worth billions of dollars turns to the bride and says, And all that I am and all that I have, I give to you. And I started to cry. Because that's what God says to us in Christ. And that's what he wants us to drink deeply of more and more. And he happens to know the only way he can get us there is by humbling us, testing us, to show us what's in our heart. And he designs the circumstances of our life so that we come to an end of ourselves, find our emptiness, and then turn and he says, all that I am and all that I have is yours. And walking by faith in me is what God wants for me. Now, if you stop and think about this, this is just the gospel lived out in the Christian life, isn't it? Where did your Christian life begin? You, you, Jesus' work on the cross and resurrection is finished once for all. That's the good news. But you didn't care about it and I didn't care about it until God the Holy Spirit brought you to the point of suing for bankruptcy. When you said, oh, I got nothing. And then he turned your eyes and went, Oh, but Jesus is everything. And that that's the nature of faith, as you look away from yourself to Christ. Well, the whole Christian life is just the repetition of that, growing in that more and more deeply. So that we walk by faith, not by sight. The righteous live by faith, which means trusting out of my emptiness in the infinite sufficiency of God. God leads us on a path so that he might train us through humbling, testing, knowing ourselves to walk by faith in his infinite sufficiency. What's God up to? That's what he's up to, taking you on a path of discovering all that he is for you in Christ.